Welcome to Podshot, everyone. Uh, I'm Seb. As you can clearly tell, I'm not Howells. He's been sidelined for today. Uh, but you get to listen to me for a while, which is fun. And I'm joined by Alex Collings. Who's your favorite coach outside of the Premier League at the moment? Um, I think maybe it's unfortunate timing because he just smashed my team. But I have to say, Walstall of Stade de Reims would probably be my favorite coach. Um, a lot of it has to do with what he does out of possession. And I think, yeah, our guest that we had today has put me on to out of possession football a lot. And I've seen a lot in what I like, yeah, that Walstall does. And also, I think this season he's started to add a lot more in possession ideas that I think are slowly coming together. Um, yeah, so I would say he's probably my favorite coach outside of the of the Premier League. Very in keeping with the everybody eats gimmick. Very good. <laughs> and we're also joined by the busiest man in football, I'd say. Uh, we're joined by John McKenzie. John, how are you? And who's your favorite coach in the outside of the Premier League at the moment? Hello, hello, hello. Yes, it's uh, it's great to be here. My favorite coach outside the Premier League is always Christian Streich at Freiburg. I'm afraid. Um, not only not only a great coach in terms of what he achieves with a club that punches above its weight, uh, but also a great human being. So yeah, he'll always be my option for this uh, question. It's a very good answer, and I can't help but agree. Uh, there's a follow-up uh, question, though. One, the first listener question we have for today. We have quite a few. Um, John, if someone was to plan a highest, how much gold bullions does John think could be stored inside a hippo? Inside a hippo. Um, is this, this is just an average common or garden hippo, is it? What's, a, what's a garden hippo size? Like a median hippo. <laughs> oh, yeah, a median hippo. Okay. Um, well, I don't even know how big gold bullion is, right? So what do we measure it in? Ingots? Let's say you could you could <laughs> smuggle... 25 ingots in your average median hippo if you're being conservative about it i think so very very good um <laughs> i suppose i have to answer this question as well you do um, yes besides the obvious ones um denise is obviously doing interesting things and so on um i'm gonna go with the german ones i find interesting at the moment um I've been known as a pretty big uh, Tim Walter fan and what he does at uh, at Hamburg uh, with his interesting build-ups. Uh, but also, quite recently, Sebastian Hoeneß coming in at VfB Stuttgart, doing very interesting and very deserbian things there. Actually uh, did an internship uh, with him or sort of visited the training ground while he was at Brighton, I think, or Sh Shakhtar? Can't quite remember. Um, but yeah, those would be my two answers. But enough about that. We're here to talk about Arsenal, which is in England and not outside of it. And we're going to start off the pod with talking about the 4-0 win Arsenal just had this Saturday over Bournemouth. Arsenal obviously faced and beat Bournemouth 4-0 on the South Coast on Saturday. Uh, an evening, an even opening period saw Bournemouth cause Arsenal problems with their press, but Bukayo Saka was eventually able to establish a lead on 17 minutes after Jesus headed an Odegaard cross onto the post. Two penalties followed either side of halftime, one on 44 minutes after Aarons fouled Edin Ketia in the box, and one after Odegaard was fouled by Ryan Christie in preparation of a shot from the top of the box just after halftime. First penalty was calmly dispatched by Martin Odegaard before he gave the second penalty to Kai Havertz to convert and ultimately put the game to bed. 
Ben White added a fourth late on from a set piece, again from Martin Oedegaard, which confirmed that Bournemouth away has officially become the annual Good Vibes party for Arsenal Football Club. <laughs> I'm going to start off with <laughs> I'm going to start off with Alex here. Um, we've talked uh, quite a lot about two things in particular this season. That's central progression and centrality in general, and chance creation. And we've seen interesting things here in this game in both departments. And I'd like to start off with central progression and specifically the interesting role David Raya played in build-up uh, in this game. Could you explain that for us real quick? Um, yeah, I think it's something that I think we wanted from Ramsdale for a while. And I think Ramsdale's even spoken before about being more hesitant to guard as far and be as involved as Arteta wanted him to be. And I think we're seeing immediately from Raya, he's joining the back line. He's kind of helping to spread play across the back line, basically joining and becoming like a plus one of himself in that building out, kind of allowing us to, yeah, to have more width in how we build up, more numbers, uh, numerical superiority. Um, and we also had Odegaard dropping in. So I think it was a big thing of how we were trying to approach playing through Bournemouth um, yesterday was basically adding as many numbers deep having more solutions and I think it is something to do with we have struggled a little bit at times to build out in deeper areas through the middle and I think this was maybe one of the solutions and I think it's something that we even started to see versus Spurs with with Uruguay in particular dropping a bit deeper um, at certain points of the game and and yeah so I think that's sort of how we aim to to build through um, from early on and then obviously with with Raya you also have um, his ability to go long so I think I think he he definitely adds a lot to what we can do in the first phase. Yeah, that deep build-up in particular sort of bore out into the numbers with Bournemouth actually having more field tilt than Arsenal in the game, uh, partly due to how they press and partly uh, down to more deep build-up. Um, another interesting component here is uh, Declan Rice, who again played as the six. Um, his performance has been lauded. Alex, what did you make of it? I'm actually not as high on... Rice's performances, I think, other Arsenal fans were. I'm not saying he had a bad performance. And again, maybe I should speak first defensively. People were saying how he kind of feels, he just makes you feel safe when we're out of possession and you see some player coming up into like Declan Rice territory. And that's that's 100% true. But I, I do feel at this point, I think he was fine um, in deeper areas. I think part of the reason that Odegaard has to drop deep, people have been speaking about adding that numerical superiority deep. But I also think there's a case of holding Rice's hand a little bit and he's still not really comfortable to receive in situations where there is a lot of pressure but then once you play through that pressure there's that advantage to to take it to take advantage of right for example playing into Odogo maybe a little bit higher up so I don't think it was a bad performance but I think what we saw in the early weeks when Rice came is in my opinion at least a very steep like curve in terms of like what he was learning, like, you know, from game to game, you could suddenly see positional ideas of making it, like, pushing himself out a little bit to receive and then knowing when the next pass to make. And I think you saw all of these improvements come very, very quickly. And I think we're kind of at this point where we still think that that's happening as much. And I don't think I saw that much from this performance that has really been an improvement over, over you know, what he was doing before. Um, having said that, I think maybe that's just kind of where I stand and maybe my own expectations of what I want a six to be able to do. But but yeah. 
can I jump in on this? Because I, I think I, I'm always going to be in danger of of doing top-down analysis of games rather than bottom-up analysis. And I think um, any fan channel is, is often going to focus on the bottom-up. So what I mean by that is focusing primarily on players and saying, did this player play well, uh, et cetera, et cetera, rather than what I would probably tend to do, which is what were the, the, the tactical ideas and structures that were at play in the game that influenced the way that it went. Um, and obviously, you know, the, the the relationship between those two top down and bottom up is is fundamental so we should be asking both of these questions but for me i think so much of what happened in this game is explicated by if if you talk about the actual big picture stuff that was happening so what i would say is that bournemouth are um, under uh, andoni iraola are trying to play a very specific kind of football which involves them being very aggressive in their in their press they use what i like to call a hybrid pressing system what i mean by that is that um a lot of teams will either try and go player for player um out of possession or or they may try and go zonal out of possession and you get upsides from both of them if you go zonal it's much more structurally sound so you're going to be much less likely to uh, actually incur oppositions being able to um, break you down in in that structural phase Um, the problem with that is that you often allow the opposition to have much more of the ball and control the game Um, if you go man for man you're going to disrupt the opposition a lot more Uh, but the problem is is that you can be pulled apart structurally so a hybrid approach is an approach which tries to get the best of of both worlds there and and Donny Areola has developed a a really I I think a very good um, hybrid approach which is based around jumping up into into high pressing phases in certain situations with the acceptance that it is going to open out weaknesses that can be exploited. So that's what Bournemouth were trying to do. They were going to be aggressive in, in the press in high areas. Um, and the idea is that you destabilize the opposition. If, if the press is broken, you then try and drop into a more zonal um, structure to, to mitigate any weaknesses that might open out. And I thought that Arsenal did a really, really good job of destabilizing the, the the high press that Bournemouth did uh, and they did that as you've already said by overloading in particularly deep areas on the pitch so not only did um, Zinchenko invert as we've seen him do uh, for most of last season you also had um, Martin Erdegaard as well dropping in um, and even dropping into the, the first line of build-up for, for Arsenal and what that did is it just meant that a lot of the specific routes that Bournemouth would be used to um, making in their out of possession phases didn't work because there was too many players for them to uh, match all of the all of the Arsenal players. So I felt that you did really well getting through that the first phases of p- possession, but what I think was really worrying about the game is that you generated these advantages through your uh, build up that you then didn't benefit from in a in a direct way. So you're getting through the the first few lines of Bournemouth pressure the pitch is now open. And this is what we've been talking about all season with Arsenal, that they haven't really been able to exploit or, or get into those situations where they're able to attack dynamically into space. There's, there was a few examples of it happening. I think even within the first five minutes, there's a situation where David Raya just passes the ball because the press has been pulled around. Zinchenko is free, one pass through the middle, and Arsenal are suddenly four players running through at the back line of Bournemouth. Um, that could have happened a lot more, and it didn't. And I think that... I think a big part of the way that I've been looking at Arsenal this season has been, well, on the one hand, yes, they've got all of these problems with central progression. They've they've struggled to to move the ball anyway through the thirds of, other than getting into the wide areas. Um, and a big part of that could simply be down to the fact that 
um, teams are now sitting a little bit more deep uh, and defensively against them, right? So you're not able to get that dynamism, the tempo that you were actually really dangerous at last season. This game, I thought you were you were given those scenarios and you weren't able to exploit them in anything like the way that you were exploiting them last season. Um, now, that's a, this may sound like a very negative way of talking about a game that you won 4-0, um, but the actual goals that were scored were... were the, the 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 first goal obviously crosses the back post, um, headed back across, bounce, bounces off the the post, and then falls nicely to Saka, and then a couple of penalties. Now, obviously, you take the goals as they come, but what I think you really wanted to see in that kind of game, where you know you're going to be given space because Bournemouth are going to be quite aggressive out of possession, um, is that you want to see that that dyna- dynamic progression still there from last season, and I don't think it was there as much, perhaps. I don't know if we're getting ahead of ourselves, John, but how much do you think Declan Rice is involved in that? Or, or let, we can start with our midfield, the midfield construction, but particularly I'm interested in, in Declan Rice's role because I think I agree overwhelming early, but it's also an aspect of we don't really have enough manipulation through the use of our pivot kind of moving the ball or just accessing the centre. That's been, and I, I'm a big fan of what we've seen of Declan Rice so far, but but that's my my main issue with him right now yeah i and look i think the 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 big narrative with declan rice is has always been one of we need to wait and see what happens um yeah and i i don't think i'm particularly well placed to to be able to talk about the development of players in, in terms of picking up technical abilities and skills but what i what i would say is that watching that game back there's a few scenarios where I see Declan Rice doing... I mean, he does good things, like you say. He does, he does good things as a pivot. He, he's a very good ball carrier, um, and I think that can be dangerous in certain situations. Um, and, and as you say, like the out-of-possession stuff, is it's just cheat code stuff. Like there's, there's no one better at defending space, potentially, in the world than Declan Rice. But there's a few scenarios that I saw where um, he actually is the reason why the progression breaks down directly. Um, a few situations where he receives the ball inside the block, um, the opposition's block, having with Arsenal having moved the ball around. And rather than making the most incisive move that you could make in that moment, he ends up either playing the ball backwards or ends up moving the ball wide because either his first touch isn't good enough um, or because the way that he's receiving the ball is too... I think too tentative. And now on the one hand, there's always going to be the argument, well, all we need to do is train him into making sure that those touches are more positive. But I think there's a reason why his natural inclination is to take a more conservative touch. And that is because he doesn't have the the sort of technical ability that a number six requires in order to play it at the in an elite team in, a, in that pinning role, as, as Lorcan calls it, which is to receive often back to goal inside the block to be able to either aid ball progression or to create space for others to be able to progress the ball. Um, there's a few scenarios that we were watching through last night, Alex, where Zinchenko's done a really good job of getting him the ball inside the block. And because his touch isn't quite sharp enough, he has to take a number of steps before he can play the ball. That means that a pass that was open to Erdogan is no longer open. And so the ball then ends up going out wide to Saka, who receives it back to goal with a, a fullback up behind him. So he can't really do anything with it. So it's, it's little things like that um, that I, I think at this level, if you're wanting to actually use your uh, pivot in a certain way, it's just it's just not good enough. And I think that's often the, the reason why those, those uh, moments break down. That's kind of the thing for me is that there's definitely a, a need for a level of technical improvement from Declan Rice. 
And the thing that maybe makes me a little bit worried about saying, oh, you know, give it a few seasons, it'll be fine, is that I can't remember watching anyone at his age going from the position he's in now to becoming a truly elite pivot player. Um, and look, maybe that'll happen. I, I I don't know. I'm not an expert in in either coaching techniques or being able to scout individual players. But um, I think that it's a, it is a really big learning curve that he's going to have to go through to get from where he is at the moment to the sort of level that you would want him to be, I think, to play as a as a very specific type type of pivot. And we can argue about whether or not that's what Mikel Arteta wants, or we can speculate about it. But um, I basically what I'm doing here is I'm comparing the way that he plays the pivot role to the way that someone like Rodri plays the pivot role. And with the caveat that obviously Rodri is probably arguably the best player to have played that role ever, give or take Sergio Busquets. I recognise that, you know, we're not just talking about no one's going to come close to Rodri. But I think that the, 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 what you can get from looking at Rodri and seeing how he plays the position, even as a, um, as a blueprint, I think at the moment, Rice is still quite a way away from that. So I'm very interested to see what is going to happen with, with Rice at Arsenal. I think he's been fantastic out of possession, as you, as you guys say. And that's part of the reason why, and we're going to get, go on to talk about this, why I'm so high on the out of possession approach that Arsenal has right now. But again, the, the big question is, oh, so many tactical questions are always trade-offs. So, you know, for the out of possession stuff that is making you guys in, incredibly difficult to break down as a team, the trade-off seems to be that you're less good at progressing the ball. Um, and that the hope is that that it gets mitigated by improvement. But uh, I suppose the big question is going to be by the end of the season, if we're still not seeing that, what 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 gives? Or are there other ways of being able to um, produce that kind of progression as well? Which is, again, something I was open to at the beginning of the season, this idea that there could be other ways of building up where you don't need to use Rice necessarily in that kind of role. Alex, do you have anything to add on that? I was actually going to ask you, Seb, because I know you're obviously a huge Jorginho fan and also I think, not that I'm low on rice at all, but higher on rice than I than I am, in possession at least. So I was interested in what you think basically his improvements have been uh, to, to have asked the question in the first place for this last game and then also of, of his, his prospects going forward. I have to say I included the rice improvement uh, thing largely to to spark a debate on him um and because we we've, we've seen done. The, <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, and be, because we've seen quite a bit of praise of the performance itself on the timeline mm. um I think generally from what I've seen from him at West Ham uh, coming into Arsenal I think he does he has sort of improved generally in terms of receiving deep turning out a bit that's not as much as, as I would have wanted, but he has adapted to the role generally a lot quicker than I imagined he would do. Um, the reason why I'm optimistic of him improving further into the future is simply seeing him at West Ham improving year on year on certain aspects of his game, both individually and in terms of coaching, and sort of diagnosing him or labeling him a really coachable player and someone who is... Who, who dedicates himself on learning new traits every time he, he wants to improve his game. If, if, if that works in, in the long term is something I can't prognose yet. But his trajectory over his career has given me hope, as well as the start of the season, has given me hope that he could improve to a point where he is able to play that role to a very high degree in the, in the team. Just to add to that, I think one of the things when we 
talk about, you know, he's 24 now, a player making that like leap in terms of technical development at this stage in his career. This isn't so much an argument in his favor, but I'm trying to think when we've really seen a player of his profile maybe move from one type of system to another. And I think a lot of technical stuff is tied in with like the tactical essence of like the decisions of like what kind of space are you going to make in order to receive and stuff like that, right? And I, I think that is something to keep in mind that it's not just him moving from, you know, one system to the same kind of system and now needing to make this technical leap. He is moving from a very different system and there are different kinds of adjustments that are probably a lot more you're able to make in terms of, okay, I need to make this decision in this moment rather than can I actually trap a ball when I receive it under this kind of pressure. So, so yeah, that's something, I mean, it still gives me a little bit of doubts because I, I wonder how improvable is stuff like receiving on the, on the half turn really, because that does feel, obviously there's a tactical element to it and awareness and stuff that he can develop, but a lot of it is also just being able to kind of receive the ball smoothly and move with it. Those are some things that give me worries, but other things that we have seen lots of improvement from him already in terms of making the space to receive or knowing to kind of stand and then jumping in to receive like the ball, you know, giving him that moment of, of freedom to then be able to be effective with his next action. We have started to see, I think what is reasonable to say now is I think we're going to see less of the stock week on week improvement. And we have to be, fine with that because I think he's kind of you know had that boot camp sort of thing where it's like okay these are the big things that I needed to improve immediately and I have done but now a lot of the things that are still limiting the player that he is or, or the effect that he can have on their team are things that'll take if they do happen will take a year or two to really to really to really help because I mean even John points to Rodri and Pep himself spoke about Rodri taking two to three years to really become the player that he is so so I think it's reasonable to expect that of Rice, even though Rice is a couple years older than Rodri was when he joined Man City. Yeah, I just wanted to jump in to echo what both of you said. The first one is that Declan Rice definitely has improved. And I agree that that argument is is a valid one. Uh, he went from being pretty abject in possession for West Ham to, to being uh, a much more confident player in, in possession of the ball. And I think that counts for something. But a lot of what we're talking about here breaks down on I know a lot of people like to use the phrase techno tactical or ta tacto technical <laughs> whatever it is and I think this is where it breaks down because there's there's different elements there right so for example with Rodri um again a, a player who definitely improved when he was at city and it took him a couple of seasons um I think a big part of that improvement was as we're saying here fit into fitting into the system getting the benefits of the system as well and let, let's let's make no bones about it that that number six role for a Pep Guardiola team is one of the most complex roles to play from a tactical point of view uh, and I think it's worth being clear that I think the area where Rodri improved was in being able to understand the role that he had to play so you'll hear um, Pep giving interviews where he says um, where he says oh Rodri needed to learn to stay still in certain phases of play um, he was fine moving um uh, out of possession and 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 making challenges but in possession he has to stay where he is um so not to jump in but like Declan Rice has had it the exact yeah, the yeah, exact yeah. same thing in his first couple of weeks absolutely after absolutely which is yeah. a real testament to um his his ability to improve and to take on complex tactical advice and to put it into play um so I wouldn't take that away from him at all but I think that what I would say about Rodri is that the the technical ability was always there 
It was simply that these the system gave it an upside that that wasn't there before. And so, again, I'm I'm happy to listen to arguments, and I'm no expert on this topic, but. It, I just the sense that I have is that what happened there wasn't necessarily that he started developing technical abilities he didn't have before, but that he understood his role such that the technical ability that he had was emphasised. Right, and yeah, sure, maybe the same thing will, will will happen with Rice. And and talking back to what Seb was saying before about the improvement he had earlier on at West Ham, a lot of that was decision making, confidence on the ball. Um, that wasn't that he didn't have the ability to to do the stuff that he was doing in terms of picking up the ball, turning, facing play and, and making passes. It's that this he was, one, able to make those kind of decisions uh, and two, it worked in the system that he was playing at. So yeah, the, the long and short of what we're saying is that it's still too early to say anything really with regards Rice's progress. But I think the the reason why I, I went in so hard after the Bournemouth game is that, as I said, the tactical scenario that I think Arsenal approached really well. Arteta is clearly a very good reader out of, out of possession phases. So he knew exactly what to do to cause Bournemouth problems. And they allowed you space, right? So you've got the two situations there perfect for, for Rice to be able to be a little bit more incisive in those moments. Um, that didn't lead to actually Arsenal dominating in terms of um, creating these incisions into the space that, that opened out. Now, again, this is one of the few games where he's been able to play in 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 those in that context. So again, it could be the situation where he needs more time developing of his confidence in order to be able to play in those situations. But there were still some technical flaws in his game that I saw um, and not like small technical flaws. I think big technical flaws that that led to uh, a lack of ability to really um uh, benefit from the the tactical uh, upside that you've earned by the approach that you've made in that game if that makes sense um i think we can leave the rice discussion here for now and i'd like to go on to uh just generally john um we've spoken about how rice has affected our in possession play just generally how do you think the in possession play generally has evolved from last season to this season. Yeah, and I said before, almost every tactical decision you're going to make is is going to involve trade-offs. Um, and I think that's particularly true when it comes to out of possession, um, the out of possession side of the game, because you can change the way that you're attacking. And yeah, okay, you'll be better or worse depending on what your new system is. But I think with out of possession play, it's very much a case of if you make one decision in one area, it's going to have a knock-on impact somewhere else that will make you weaker. So we've already talked about Bournemouth wanting to go high man-to-man in their, in certain pressing phases in order to try and destabilise the opposition. But they do that at the risk of creating a weakness um, and that is that maybe they'll go player for player on the back line so if you've got an unfavourable 1v1 matchup um, between a centre back and a forward you can just go long and try and exploit that weakness and almost all out of possession decisions I think result in in those sorts of trade-offs and I think that's sort of how I've been reading Arsenal's season so far. And maybe it's a little bit of a reductive way of looking at it, but it seems as though Mikel Arteta came out of last season and, and said, where, where were the areas where we really um, lost out last season? Those areas were often in defensive transition. And that was what stopped us from winning the league. Therefore, what we need to do is make sure that we're much better prepared for um, preventing 
these defensive transitions, um, which is, I think, is fair. You know, Pep Guardiola, I think, is exactly the same, right? Is you know, the, 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 these these guys lie awake at night worrying about rest defense because, <laughs> for a reason because that's the way that Man City <laughs> lose. Like Man City very rarely lose without being xG'd by someone. Um, but I think that the problem is, is that when when I'm talking about Pep Guardiola, I think Pep Guardiola still will always make sure that his in possession stuff is going to be the priority. Um, because he knows that if your in-possession stuff is good, not only are you going to score goals, you're also going to be able to control games. Um, and that's why people talk about Pep as a control freak, because he knows, okay, if the option here is um, between being really good out of possession versus being really good in possession, I'm not going to focus on the out of possession stuff because I can make us the best out of possession team in the world. But if we don't have the ability to control the game in possession, all that's going to happen is that the opposition is just going to constantly attack us. And eventually you will, you will give up a weakness somewhere. So I think his attitude is always the in possession stuff takes priority. We're going to make sure that the in possession stuff is working. And then we're going to have a decent enough out of possession approach, which, um, which mitigates the fact that every once in a while in a game, we are going to face a really dangerous counterattack, essentially. And I feel as though for me this season, that's this summer, that's what that's maybe where Arteta potentially lost his way a little bit because I think he then swung the boat too far in the other direction, being like, well, if we make sure that we solve the out of possession issues, we're and we're really solid. And and you guys talked a lot about um Arsenal being antagonists in games. And I like that. I think that's I think that's a really nice way of putting it. Antagonists versus protagonists. Um but I think that the problem becomes that if you are if you overweight towards antagonism, you lose the ability to do the protagonism, right? And that's 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 why Pep Guardiola is is such a dangerous coach because he's constantly thinking of ways to score goals and to retain possession of the of of, of the ball. Because if he can do those things well, he's only going to ever lose by being unlucky on opposition's finishing. So. Again, that's maybe a reductive way of looking at what's happened this season. But the way you know the story of this season is Arsenal are much better out of possession than they were, and they were very good last season out of possession. Um, but the in possession side of things has has struggled a bit. Um, I think you've got some data further down, but the one for me is like open play expected goals. You guys have had five penalties in seven games, which is papering over the cracks of your attacking production right now in some senses you argue well we don't need to if we you know you get two penalties against Bournemouth you don't need to go out and attack you can control the game a little bit more so there's definitely game state impact here but at the same time like there's a few games where you've had to have penalties to to switch the games around right so the, certainly the Palace game you won 1-0 on a penalty right uh, and and in the long run that's a that's going to be a problem because you're not going to get five penalties in seven games uh, for the rest of the season so yeah I think that there are issues here that, that need to be sort of teased out Just before we move on John I do want to ask though since we've spoken a lot about the six and we've got questions like from Tricky Reds 14 why can't we access central zones when we build up how do we solve this problem? Um, also, you know, comparing us to City. And then even another question from G. Belusu, is Kai Havertz at eight at the eighth thing working? I want to get your thoughts on basically both of our eights and the roles that they've played and maybe our more stagnant creation, chance-creating abilities this season. So that being Odegaard and Kai Havertz. I feel as though this this podcast episode is me being thrown under the bus repeatedly and then I'm crawling out of the other side and you're like, here's another bus, let's throw you under this one. Um, 
Yeah, so we've done Declan Rice. That's one of the big debates. Now let's move on to the number eights. Um, yeah, I mean, I'd be interested. Look, you guys are so much better placed to be able to talk about the two eights than I am. So I'd, I'd be sort of interested to hear your thoughts on what the general positions are from Arsenal fans on who should be the starting eights uh, and what the critiques are of... Uh, Erdogan is the, is the one who I, I think came in for a bit of flack after the after the um, North London derby. Um, Emil Smith-Rowe is always lurking in the background, right? And football fans have this wonderful way of thinking that the solution to all of their problems lie just off the pitch, right? Um, <laughs> so yeah, there's there. I presume there's a group of fans who think, oh, you know, Erdogan wasn't great in that game. There's there's clear problems that Erdogan has. He's not like, he isn't the most well-rounded player to play as an eight ever. Um, therefore, if we bring in Emil Smith-Rowe, then all of those problems will go away. Um, and I'm sort of interested to hear what you, what you guys think. Like, uh, again, as a neutral, I can sort of look at this and think. I see Arsenal fans arguing about that that topic. I see Arsenal fans. Everyone's arguing about Kai Havertz, right? But what what do you actually think is at, at stake in these in this argument? Like, what what is the upside that you suddenly get from having Emil Smith Rowe over um, Martin Erdogan? And let, let's not forget that Martin Erdogan is the reason you were in the title challenge last season. I think that's that is worth saying. That's not to say that Martin Erdogan is a perfect player by any means, but without his 15 goals from midfield, which is quite frankly an insane amount of goals from from midfield, I don't think you get anywhere near being, near being in a title challenge. So we've talked a lot so far this this episode about how there's been a trade-off between what's happening in possession and out of possession. And I've already said that like my main approach is always going to be top-down. So when I see that a player like Martin Erdegaard is, is raising questions from the fans about his fit, my my natural go-to position is always going to be, well, surely the, what's happened here is the structure's changed or um, the, 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 the game state that he's functioning in has changed. We talked about how there's been a, dyna- a dynamic change in terms of the attacking as well. Martin Erdogan was obviously a very dangerous, dy- dynamic transition attacker. Um, if that aspect of the game drops off as well, um, that's going to impact him as well. But um, I'm just interested to hear what you guys think because because you guys know way more about this topic than me. I mean, I guess I can step in on Uruguay. I think you know my thoughts here, John. But but yeah, with Uruguay, my, my thing is that he has some limitations that are very clear in the moments where he's being limited by them. So certain times where he can't turn out of pressure because he's very one-footed. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we can kind of compare them to guys like Gundogan who just feel like they can turn out of anything. They can receive anywhere um, and very statically. And I think what's happened is because he has these limitations... And because I think so much of the system depends on Uruguay functioning. I think when Uruguay doesn't function, the system struggles a lot. I think it, it gets to the point where we kind of see Uruguay as having these clear limitations that prevent us from getting to the next level or being able to improve as a team. And therefore, we're reaching the end of our road with him. I think that's the general I, the general discussion or discourse where we're at with Uruguay. I think what, it, what happens though is A, and I guess we'll speak about this later, um, but you ignore a lot of what he's really, really important for and stuff like out of possession, I think he's incredibly important for. I think we can also talk just soft factors as a leader in the team. He's incredibly important and he's incredibly respected by the rest of the, the team. I think that's always important. But if we just talk what he does in possession, I think 
when you create these dynamic moments is what we were doing a lot last season. We were able to do a lot last season. He's one of the best in the world at them, whether it ends with him shooting on goal uh, as a range shooter or trying to, you know, play off a pass or connect play. I think he's just an incredibly good player to be able to keep possession and and do something effective with it in 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 the hole in zone 14. And yeah, I think what what's happened is we access him less in these areas now. And people have started to blame him for the reason that we don't access him in, in those areas rather than looking elsewhere on the pitch. This is at least where I feel. And I do agree that if he didn't have the limitations that he has, he'd be able, these wouldn't be as big problems, right? But I think if he didn't have those limitations, he'd probably start, be starting for Real Madrid right now. So it's one of those one of those cases. And, and he is a player who's incredibly intelligent and found a lot of ways to, to navigate and negotiate his own limitations and almost in a way in certain places turn them into strengths right um and i think it's it's a it's a thing or a case with urugo that isn't you know um he's not afforded the same sort of leniency that other players are for example when we struggle to to access soccer in dangerous zones and stuff i think often there are also structural reasons for it but he's not blamed for those structural reasons whereas i think urugo is seen as the guy holding back the system so while I do, and I can almost, I can, I mean, Odegaard's my favorite player in, in, at the club, but I can buy into this idea that he is more of a floor raiser than a ceiling raiser at, at when we get to the top, top end. And that's where we want to be as a club. I think it's also, a, it's just a bit reductive to be like, well, we don't really need these important floor raisers because he is, as a floor raiser, the reason we're so good at doing a lot of the things that we do well. Personally, I think that the issue is that we didn't maybe bring in a left eight to really help the system more than there being issues with Odegaard. Hmm. Can I just add to that that Odegaard has to play all over the pitch for Arsenal. When you, when you think about what his what his role is, yes, he's he's playing as a as a as an eight, but he's pushing up onto the front line of of the press. So he has to get into the he has to get all the way up into the edge of the op- opposition penalty area. In the game against Bournemouth, he was building up in the first line for Arsenal as well. So. And there's no one, again, we use City as the blueprint. There's no one doing that. Kevin De Bruyne, when he's available, plays as the eight who pushes up. He's not also dropping in and, and helping out like that deep in the in the build-up as well. So I think there's an argument to be made that he's sort of being stretched quite a lot at the moment as well. Yeah. I think a lot of the frustration also stems from the fact that there's this perceived switch of roles he has this season where he is more inclined to force shots and take more shots generally and be a sort of first scorer for the team um, while sort of ignoring the circumstances around him. One that Alex just mentioned that I was about to mention as well in that Kai Havertz is on the other side, which then forces different issues leading to us using the right-hand side mm-hmm. more often, central progression issues leading to us playing the ball to Saka in more, uh, how do you say, in, in flatter zones with him, being isolated um and there seems to be the thing that Urugo is responsible for those things which I don't quite agree with which then also leads to the Emil Smith-Rowe discussion with him being perceived as someone who can generate uh, artificially generate more dynamic situations with Saka because we've seen that before and two years ago um while ignoring the other issues that 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 also happened uh, in that period while we're on Urugo um one thing I was um, wa- uh, wanting uh, to post to you, Alex, is uh, his performance in the Bournemouth game, um, 
because he did shoot le far less than he did before and uh, changed uh, generally a few things that he did. And that coupled with the fact that uh, Gabi Jesus played on the right w uh, left wing for us this game. Um, there was a tweet Logan did, actually, I'm about to quote here, uh, saying Jesus on the left emulates Saka from uh, Saka on the right, and in doing so, dampen central access concerns in second, third phase. Triple threats who are mo manipulative enough to attack you want and we won if you don't cover off ball runners. Do you think the inclusion of Jesus on the left and the dynamics that happened in that way affected Odegaard's role enough to see the the change he made in in general play? It's a tough one because I think game state and just the, the nature of Bournemouth's approach to us mean it's hard to kind of draw that conclusion because uh, I was watching back for that. I, I even said I was going to on Twitter because I think it's a really good point and an interesting one from from Lorcan, but it's it's hard for me to draw that conclusion as of yet um, in terms of that creating the space for Uruo because I could see a, a situation where we played who? Um, Reese Nelson out wide who's maybe less explosive and electric and kind of can create anything. I think Reese Nelson's pretty good at that stuff, but obviously not to the level that Jesus is um, near the level. No one really is. Um, for me, I can still see that, you know, Odegaard having those spaces. So I think it's one to keep an eye on. And it's interesting that we have seen Jesus now starting out on the left again um, after after calling for it for so long. <laughs> because personally, we've been looking for a winger and it's hard to see a winger on the market that can really do the stuff that we'd want them to be able to do. But Jesus can do that and better than any winger that I can really see on the market that's realistic for us to get. So I'm really happy to see him there, but I think it would be too early for me to draw conclusions as a, like just yet. Um, but I, I do think there's a there's something in in that and what Lawkins said, and I think it's an interesting idea because we're trying to find ways in which we can access those middle players with a little bit more space um, than we have been able to, and just be able to access zone 14 like full stop right it's been it's been a difficulty if you look at all those pass maps it's always like it gets up to kind of like the middle the halfway line and then it starts going out wide and then it doesn't really come back you know if it's coming in it's going in towards the box which we know will be protected it's never really trying to access just before then and i think yeah that's kind of been how our season has gone the lack of central incision how many times have we said that this this season already i think this is an interesting way in which we can try by having that, those kind of players, you can then, you know, force a little bit more attention, but then can also almost dismark themselves by just taking on players and, and creating a space, then accessing the middle players, I think is an interesting, an interesting thing to look and see if we can do. Because for all Martinelli's strengths, I think he he doesn't really do that as much anymore or, or never really did. He's very good at taking the ball up, progressing to that point, but not actively going past and then in a way that he can link up back into the middle. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Um, jumping out of the Bournemouth game and just into general discussion. Uh, John, you've already mentioned it. Uh, you caught the eye of Arsenal fans on Twitter recently by saying we're the best out-of-possession team in the world, or you think we're the best out-of-possession team in the world. Um, what what makes you say that? Technically, I said I think I think that, which I think is is even more of a buffer between. So I've got I've got a good excuse. Um, Goes wrong, but yeah. Um, I think for me, the, the answer to this question is just flexibility. Um, I think flexibility is, is super important for teams when they're playing out of possession, because as we've said, 
when you're approaching the out of possession side of things, it's all about trade-offs. So if you have the ability to be able to make more trade-offs, then you're going to be much harder for oppositions to play because you're, you can go high in certain phases. You can go aggressive on one side or the other. You can change the way that you mark players in the middle. You can either do man marking or zonal marking, etc. You, you are able to be flexible mid games as well. Um, and it's, yeah, it's funny. Like, obviously, a, a tweet like that is going to go down well with a fan base. If if you describe them as as the best team in the world, um, at any at any aspect, they're they're going to jump on that quite quickly. But to almost bring it back to what I was saying before, part of the reason why I think you're the best team in the world at it is because you've focused on improving in that area, and we're already very good last season. So um, I mentioned Pep Guardiola is always focuses on the in possession stuff. Manchester City are very good out of possession, but I think that what Man City do is they're very they they do have that flexibility, but they have flexibility out of a four four two shape pretty much. Um, I mean they can they can change up um, for for various games, but for the most part they're going to play four four two, and they again they'll be able to tweak within that system. So there'll be situations where they're going to press high or sit more of a mid block. They can press up with their front two in in the 4-4-2 or they can play more of a 4-2-4 shape where the wingers actually do a lot of pressing out to in um, depending on the opponents and they're so well drilled in that system that they are very 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 good out of possession um, but they aren't Arsenal they aren't able to change up their structure uh, game to game um, and have the ability to and the players importantly the players to to do that uh, as well and I think you know with Arsenal now adding Declan Rice in as the six there's there's a there's an argument to be made that yes okay Arsenal are still going to allow weaknesses in certain areas but they allow those weaknesses in the areas around Declan Rice and he's a cheat code so you end up being you know that weakness becomes less of a weakness so it's just it's a it's a positive thing and a negative thing um to a to an extent um, I think a lot of people think of me as just like spending my whole day watching out of possession stuff. And like I do focus on on that side of things, but I will always be someone who is going to say the out of possession is important only insofar as it supports the in possession. Um, that's where my, some of my favourite managers are, are um, not necessarily just good out of possession coaches who are sitting in a low block or whatever and coaching a low block. Otherwise, I'd love Simeone and I just don't love Simeone. Um but coaches like um, Alex mentioned will still before. And that's what I think is brilliant about those coaches. They're very good out of possession because you have to when you start out at the bottom of leagues, when you start with teams that you know are competing against a much higher talent ceiling. But they add aspects to their in-possession play, which is directly... Uh, it's directly shaped by what they're doing out of possession. So they they think about the scenarios where they're going to win the ball back and how that then can translate into them attacking in the most dangerous way possible. Um, so again, yeah, it's 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 good to be the best out-of-possession team in the world. It's better to be the best team at, at being able to balance your out-of-possession and your in-possession play. And that's why Man City are the best team in the world, if that makes sense. So um, no doubt this is, a, this is a learning curve for Arteta. So again, I expect to see, you know, the, 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 the pendulum will swing the other way at some point. Um, and it's always good to start with out of possession stuff. I think the Arsenal became really good in the season. They became really good um, when they um, when they just missed out on Champions League football. The first sign that I had that they were going to be really good was that they were developing this flexibility out of possession. Um, and again, I don't want to get into to, 
into debates about like how early we noticed that Arteta was going to be a decent coach because, you know, it, it becomes a race to the bottom, right? Um, where you have to sort of claim that you could see it when when his mother conceived him, right? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, like people go further back. But um, I think that, you know, that was the moment where I was like, this guy, Arsenal was struggling to control games. They developed an out-of-possession system that allowed them much more... Uh, possibilities to be able to control games in in phases outside of in possession and that had a knock-on impact for their in possession play um and i think yeah that's where, where that's where i started from so yeah i'm, I'm a massive fa- fan of arteta as an out of possession coach um i think he may he may be the best in the world um it's it's hard to, it's very hard to say because you know there are some coaches who are only ever going to be able to be out of possession coaches because of the reality of the clubs that they're at um but in, in terms of the elite side of the, the game, um, I think that he understands what I've been talking about in terms of the trade-offs as well as any elite manager that I've seen. Um, I'm sure Pep Guardiola is the same. I think he just cares about it less because he's more f- infatuated with the the in-possession side of things and controlling the game in-possession being a reason to focus less on the out-of-possession. And I think the reason he does that is because he wants to spend time working with his team on in possession phases and so the fact that he has like a one size fits all out of possession phase is good for him because he can say this is great we all know what we're doing we don't need to constantly work on our out of possession stuff in training we can obviously go through the drills make sure it's kept topped up but then it gives us more time to to do the in possession stuff and I think you see similar things from coaches like Roberto De Zerbi um, Marcelo Bielsa as well coaches who consistently get panned when they lose games because people say look the obvious weaknesses in your system but I think you forgive them having a slightly shonky out of possession approach when the in possession upside that they've got is 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 worth it so yeah um Arteta a very good out of possession coach in my opinion yeah and uh just on that since we mentioned the trade-off now a few times uh just two listener questions to sort of build on that point Apex underscore Owen asks, to what extent is Arsenal's out-of-possession structure compromising their quality in possession? Do we need to find a better balance having become too reliant on the counter-press as our playmaker? And the other question was uh, from uh, Ed Chlebboost. Building on your thread you did uh, from the Community Shield, I think, Mm -hmm. uh, asking what can Arsenal do to better prevent being caught in between the high press and settled block out of possession phases that City and Spurs exploited. Yeah, so this is going back to what we were talking about before in terms of hybrid pressing. So what Bournemouth were trying to do is what Arsenal often do against opposition teams. And I think the the, the way to think about this is that whenever you're using any um, approach out of possession, which is going to rely on a transition between two different states, that transition phase can become really um, it can become a target for weaknesses, right? Because you're moving from one shape to the other. That's when um, these sorts of um, things open open up and and you can find those weaknesses to exploit as the in-possession team. Um, so we saw that in, yeah, in the, I think in the Community Shield, right? Where the goal was caused by um, Phil Foden dropping in, baiting uh, Thomas Partey out, turning him, and then being able to attack the 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 uh, Arsenal back line, um, and then yeah, Spurs. That's what they that's what they're trying to do under Ange Postecoglou. It's all about baiting and and getting the. So you, you're often with Declan Rice. He's playing a sort of floating role where he has to read what's going on and decide 
which player he's going to jump on. And if you can get them, if you can get Rice to jump forward in a situation where actually you can then bypass that that forward pressing unit, you can generate these sorts of situations. But as I said before, I think a lot of people think that um, out of possession good out of possession play means that no one ever scores goals and I just think it's just not true no team has ever not conceded a goal in the season uh, even the ones where they where they have fantastic out of possession systems it's all about trade-offs and so you allow that as I said already you allow that weakness because you've got Declan Rice there um, so it mitigates that weakness to a to a large extent now obviously if uh, if oppositions are being able to read your um, out of possession approach and find out ways of tricking you into jumping from one face to the other to make that transitional moment, which can open up the weakness, then that's an issue. But I think for the most part, the, whenever that happens, it's because, okay, here we go. There's Man City, one of the best teams in the world, uh, with one of the best coaches of the world at reading what the opposition are doing out of possession to be able to exploit it. You take that. It's, it's, it happens. Um, what you do is you work on those on those phases and those transitional moments to to make sure that you're doing the best you can to stop them from being dangerous. So, yeah, it's always what I want to say when people talk about out of possession stuff like clean. The, the idea that the perfect game would result in two in, in clean sheets, like a nil nil draw, is nonsense. Nonsense, because you can you can do everything yeah. right out of possession and still concede, um, because there is always going to be there is always going to be that trade-off somewhere. If they can find the weakness and exploit it, then, you know, yes, you could have maybe done things differently, but you would have been playing a different system then and there would be a weakness that would open out somewhere else. So, yeah, I think that, um, I mean, what can they do to better prevent being caught between those phases? I think there's there's an extent to which I would just say, you know, it's inshallah and pray to the gods because you, 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 pre- you prepare you prepare yourself as best as possible for those moments, and you go back through them when they when they happen and try and work to, work out ways of mitigating them. But you accept also that they are going to happen, and so when they do happen, you don't say, "Oh, this is terrible. Our out of possession system isn't working." You just say, "You know, sometimes these things happen, and and we're happy that our approach is actually mitigating what the opposition are trying to do in possession." Yeah, it kind of reminds me of the City 4-1 loss last season. Because, I mean, I think a lot of what you have to do is you kind of have to bank a little bit on, on luck going your way. And I think we had a pretty good approach. But just Haaland, everything kind of came off for Haaland. Every sort of ball came off for Haaland, except for maybe yeah. the shots. But he did end up, what, with two goals in the end? Or maybe just one goal? I can't really remember. Um, one. But yeah, sometimes, sometimes, was it one? But sometimes, like, I think we had a pretty good approach that game. And because it ended up being 4-1, people would probably say that we just got completely outsmarted in the build-up, in our out-of-possession approach. But I think it was just... Obviously, Sadir are an amazing side. I'm not trying to say we outplayed them that that day, but I think we set up well and just lucked and fall our way. And then, you know, after you go goals down, the game plan itself kind of falls out of the window. The f- a little that bit. first goal came from you pressing really well, quite high. Yes, it left you exposed. Yes, it left Holland in a one v one with Rob Holding. But even despite that, everything went perfectly. So, you know, the the ball he, he took a perfect touch. He played a perfect pass. Only Holland doesn't have that sort of consistency with consecutive actions usually and then Kevin De Bruyne yeets it in from 20 yards out it's, <laughs> it's okay you can say could we have done better and the answer is always yes but you can also say were we unlucky and and the answer is almost always yes so I, I think that that's that's the way that you have to read it the, the other thing that I should say as well is how do you avoid uh, being caught in those moments you have the flexibility to be able to move between different shapes and systems. Uh, and that's what Arsenal do so well. Um, 
it's what City do well as well because they they within games they recognise where the weaknesses aren't helping them out and they switch they tweak the system a little bit and because Arsenal have more flexibility I would say than City because they have the ability to shift between space, uh, shapes then if you are constantly feeling as though you are in a system which is being caught in those moments you can change the the system you can move the weakness around you can make it hard for the opposition to to be able to read where the weakness is going to be I think we're going to take a break now um, so we'll be right back after this sweet jazzy jingle. And we're back. I hope you enjoyed that beautiful jazzy jingle. Um, we certainly did. <laughs> and we enjoyed the break. And we're back. We didn't hear the jazzy jingle. No, but disclosure. we enjoyed the break. Yeah, I think we can, okay, we, we, okay. We, we can say that much. Um, to get back into the discussion, um, we, we have a few more listener questions that we'd like to pose into the room. Alex, is Emil Smith-Rowe the answer to our problems? I, th I think he's certainly a solution. I, I think one of the things that we have in our squad is we, and I think we've we've spoken before, I know I've spoken with John about whether we have too much flexibility in the squad now or, or not, you know, if, if that's become an issue, but we basically have a lot of different aids. But what is nice about that is we have different aids for different solutions. So... I can 100% see a lot of games where we could really do with Smith Rowe's ability to receive on the turn and play through the middle and also, you know, arrive into those tight pockets and kind of be effective from there. Especially he's very good at making those decisions as he gets onto the ball into these tighter zones where I think habits we've kind of seen isn't, unless he's getting onto the end of it in the penalty box, maybe. Um, so I think there are lots of situations where you could use Smithrow. For example, I mean, we spoke a lot about Udegor earlier, but I would love to sometimes see Smithrow coming on for Udegor as the as the right eight, and then seeing that kind of bringing more out of Saka in that dynamic, with him kind of you know becoming rotating out to being the the wide right player, and then Saka coming inside. So yeah, it's it's less about whether like Udugo, um Smithrow should be the the left eight, but I think he should just be one of the options there. Um, at the moment, I think playing them more than Habits, I think he'd be more effective. I think our central incision would be more effective. I think our ability to actually play into the middle and keep the ball in the middle and be effective through the middle would all improve. And I think that's true what we've seen with Fabio Vieira as well. So I think in a way Habits is is more limited there at the moment, but it's not all his fault because there's there's problems with accessing the ball there in, in the first place, but he isn't the best person to be playing into or to dropping in alongside to help move the ball through the middle, where I think Fabio and Smithrow are both better at doing that. Yeah. Uh, we, we wanted to talk on um, something else, which is how the issues and limitations we have that we've already spoken about are self-inflicted not just through uh, the things we've spoken about and uh, the, the emphasis on out-of-possession, but also on the squad we've built, not just in terms of personnel and starting eleven, but also backup profiles. Um, and Michael116017941, very creative uh, username there, uh, asked a question in a similar vein that I'd like to post to John in, uh, is there a profile missing from Arsenal's current squad that Arsenal might benefit from having uh, specifically talking about the ever-recurring Ivan Tony links. We could do with a number six right now. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, I, so, what, so why is why are Arsenal linked with Ivan Tony? Because Arsenal are now building up in a way where they end up with possession in wide areas. Um, 
and no one in the box to play really as a as an out and out target man like like someone like Tony, I guess. Um seems to be the seems to be the logic there. Um there's been a few games I think where you've just sort of ended up horseshoeing a little bit because of the lack of central incision and um yeah, you end up putting in, in crosses to like Eddie and Ketier and who I think is good in, in the air. Let's let's make no two bones about it. But I think the idea of being, oh, well, you know, if we had a bit more of a physical um, uh, and um, a, a taller num- number nine, then we might get more joy from those sorts of situations. But again, I guess the question comes down to like, what, th- let's focus on the bigger picture here. Like what, what is it that we're, what is it that we're wanting to achieve here? Is the, is the solution to tactical problems to just sort of keep fitting enough square pegs in round holes so that something happens uh, rather than actually sort, sorting out what the tactical issues are and making sure that the the player profiles that you already have are, are improved by it, right? That seems to me to be the solution to the Martin Erdogan problem, um, along with, as, as, as Alex suggested, you know, a little, maybe a little bit more flexibility at rotating players around depending on the opposition that you're facing. But beyond that... Yeah, I don't know. I feel I feel as though in the summer we talked a lot, Alex, about the way that the transfer winning window was opening out for Arsenal, particularly this concept of flexibility, which weirdly I think has sort of disappeared since we started talking uh, since the seasons unfolded, and the idea being, you know, oh, we we have a number of players who can come in, we can invert fullbacks from either side we can have a, a a double pivot if we want or we could yeah we could get that double pivot from um either an inv- inverting fullback or players dropping in situationally so you know habits could drop in Erdogan's been dropping in they even see eddie and katia dropping in quite deep in, in certain phases of build-up as well um with with the idea being that it's good to have different profiles so you know durian timber brought in offers you a load of flexibility. You can play either side. You can play him as a as a backup as well to Saliba, which was considered to be a problem. And then we've already talked about the flexibility that Kai Havertz offers, being able to play as a striker and as an eight and to allow you to do things out of possession in certain ways as well. And there was a lot made of, I think, Declan Rice as a, as a flexible option between like a six and an eight if you wanted as well. But I I was always a little bit confused as to what why that was considered to be such a good approach to the window because and again it, it seems to be part of this um reading of of Arteta where he like swings the boat too far the other way um so the season before the issue was a lack of tactical flexibility a lack of tactical flexibility which meant that he had to play out the, the wrong profiles in certain um spots in the starting 11 right so playing rob holding as a saliba replacement rather than finding a system that could mitigate some of the issues that you might have if you tried to do that so that was the the sort of context but i was i was confused because i i think that you know the solution to that kind of problem isn't necessarily to bring in a load of different profiles who could come in um the solution to that to that problem is to usually like give you give you backups uh, in the areas where you're weak or have the relevant tactical flexibility to be able to tweak things a little bit. Whereas it seemed as though the solution was going to be, okay, we could play Jury and Timber one week as a left back inverting into the middle. Um, we we saw um, Thomas Partey like inverting out of the, the right back position for a bit. Um, th- we saw Declan Rice playing as an eight in the community shield with Havertz as a as a nine, and this it was it was almost offered as a solution that this is great, right? We can play all of these different shapes, um, and 
uh, and and move between systems quite nicely. But I think it became very clear very quickly that you can't, you simply can't do that. You can't flex. Flexibility is great on paper, but you, if you lose, if you lose the, you know, the 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 socio effective relationships between players playing in the same sides in the same systems in the same structures. Um, it, things can go wrong. Like a great example of that is Manchester City in the Champions League final, switching to a, a diamond midfield for a very, uh, for a very perspicuous tactical reason, which is that it it attacked spaces within Inter's out of possession system. The problem was is the players weren't that you changed the build up shape. Um, the players weren't used to making the sorts of passes from the sorts of angles they were expected to. And so despite the fact that they were able to ex- create these problems in Inter's out of possession approach, they weren't able to actually benefit from them. Um, which is similar to what we talked about before with Bournemouth, right? Um, that you get you get tactical upside, but you don't have the the technical ability to benefit from those upsides in the moment. Uh, and I th- that was sort of my concern going into the season was that it was all very nice and well saying, oh, now we've got all of these different ways that we can change our build-up shape or change our final third shape. But I think that it was too much change. And we very quickly seen Arsenal sort of fall back to roughly what they were doing last season, right? With Zinchenko inverting inside and Rice having replaced Party, and then Havertz having replaced Xhaka. It's we're back in the same that that same sort of ballpark. It feels to me uh, like so. Yeah, that was that was my my rough take of like the the way that the squad's been built. And if that is the case, and you are going to go back to what you're doing last season with maybe a few profiles in there that don't fit, then yeah, it, it is self inflicted. Um, but the big question is how much of that came from Arteta thinking that he could bring in all of these flexible options and then just make it work game to game. And I think, you know, that's where the, the question lies. I guess my thing here is, is, firstly, we've had a couple of injuries which have led to, you know, falling away from the sort of flexibility discussion. I think Partey being injured, Timber being injured is a big one. Um, who else has been injured? I guess Gabby J from the beginning of the season, Zinchenko early has meant that they like that's why the flexibility discussions dropped a little bit but in general i do agree i think it also might be a bit early to come to that take though i guess we'll see for example what we'll get to soon i guess is the next game is the city game i'm very interested to see how we approach the game and if it's anything similar to how we approach them in the community shield particularly with regards to the use of Havertz. i think obviously parte is still injured so we won't have rice as, as the eight but but that's kind of that's where I'm sitting. Having said that, I do. It has become a thing where I remember when we spoke about this in the summer, John. I was a lot more non-committal about where I stood on this, and I, I definitely thought that there was a need to add flexibility to the squad because that's where we'd fall, fallen short last season. But I do feel, and I do worry that we've basically got to this point where we've added so much new flexibility that we're forced to change constantly when we lose someone there has to be some sort of change. And right now, maybe we're sitting in a system that is similar to last season's, right? I, I don't think we're ever going to divorce ourselves entirely from that, or, you know, leave that system. But we just have like slightly worse fitting profiles. I do still think there's some changes, definitely in terms of how we're, I guess, set up defensively um, out of possession, but also in terms of trying to go long a little bit more. There are those aspects that we have changed. Um, but yeah, no, I, I do take that point. I think it's, it's an interesting one to kind of come back to, I think, maybe around the halfway mark of the season and seeing where we where we stand at that point. But it, it's been an issue now. For example, 
like what happens if Zinchenko in, gets injured. He's always the one that I'm very worried on because if we lose him, then we basically lose our way of building up at the moment because we don't actually have a correct backup for him. Kivio's a player I'm a huge fan of, but can't do the same sort of job that we rely on Zinchenko to do, right? Speaking of reevaluating things uh, a bit of time after the fact, uh, Boyle Jug at Boyle Jug uh, asked the question, uh, more more for the Potshot boys, but always love hearing John's expertise. In the season preview, you were all pretty much sure of the idea that Arsenal will start slower than last season, and we have. Despite this, you guys still seem uh, concerned with how we are uh, we ha how we have played. Uh, did you guys envisage starting slower due to different reasons, i.e. tactical familiarity, or am I silly and you guys expected this all along? I suppose we'll start with Alex. Well, I will say I do think I've been proven somewhat right um, in that I think I was probably the one pushing that we would start slower the most on that part. Not to hype myself, but I think we were, I was. Um, yeah, and I, I think for many reasons we have. Maybe the reasons why we've where I'm concerned though more than I maybe should be um, is just now actually seeing the slower start and kind of realizing how not guaranteed the improvement is. Not to say that it's it won't happen, but just a lot of it depends on on certain things clicking, like habits clicking. We've spoken a lot about them, so I'm not going to retread that. But Rice, another one we've spoken a lot about. These players kind of coming to the party a bit. Not coming to the party, I think Rice has been very good, for example. But but the big issue that we've kind of seen, and I think we were expecting to see is to some extent, is the like, yeah, threatening through the middle, um, central progression, threatening from zone 14. And obviously those those are huge hallmarks also of, of the best teams on the world threatened from those areas. And we aren't doing that. And the way for us to start doing that depends a lot on Anya, for example, I think Rice a lot have it to a lesser extent, although he can be a bit more replaced. I think the problem is if we do go from that and revert from that and then try to find other ways to threaten through the middle, then we suddenly, we've, we've been speaking about like trade-offs. So then we're trading off a lot of what we've done to be so good defensively. And I guess those are just, ju those are just the worries at the moment. I'm, I'm not, I'm not hardly, yeah, doom, like, what's the word, dooming over... Our season so far, I'm, I'm in a way satisfied, but like if you look at our XG and our in possession stuff, I mean, ninth in cumulative open play XG, 15th in open play goals, ninth in big chances, ninth in shots per game. Um, those are all pretty worrying stats, even with the prediction that we would start off a bit slower this season. So that's that's kind of where I stand. But at the same time, I can see it improving. I do think just some changes will need to be made or, or proper compromises will need to be made or accommodations. Yeah, I think I agree in terms of, I think it's more about how slow we've started the season with the amount of open play goals, with the amount of open play chances we've created and the struggles we've had there. I think the reasons for them are the ones we, we flagged up at the start of the season pretty much. Um, but I'd, I'd really like to get John's perspective on this as well. Yeah, I think that when you go into a season where you've made a lot of changes in the summer window, you expect there to be like growing pains in some way. And I, I suspect that what you guys envisaged was, okay, we're going to play the same sort of football roughly 
and there may be some games where we lose because you know a striker doesn't take a goal or a, a, you know a winger doesn't finish because of because of whatever they're not familiar with the teammates they're playing alongside and i think what's actually unfold and so in that respect we're talking about you know obvious like familiarity yeah exactly like performance failures right where you're like okay everything's mm. good but um, something's just gone wrong which has led to us not winning this game that's fine we don't mind it um because it, there will be this upward trajectory where we'll start seeing those things slightly disappear and, and get ironed out and i think what's worrying about the season for you guys is that it, it feels as though well, i've talked about it a lot in this episode as the boat swinging too far the other way um and so it's not the case necessarily that you're playing the same way that you were playing last season and it's just slightly less good you're playing in a completely different way and it's you know as we've said like in terms of the stuff you were good at last season it's it's nowhere near that level and so if it it feels as though rather than building on something last season it's been a restructuring of something um that that is is quite different but i think at the same time i think you guys probably flagged that last in the summer saying you know this is going to take time to get good because arteta is decided that this project is going to be better by tearing it down a little bit and then rebuilding it and i guess the worrying thing for you guys is that you're not seeing much of evidence that the the rebuilding project is going to produce something better than what there was before now again that just comes down on whether or not you think that the time frame on this is a couple of seasons or or more versus two or three months and I, I expect fans are always going to be like positive on this on this aspect um but yeah i think it requires a lot of faith for you to keep being like for you to be in a situation where you're like arteta knows best having gone through the first uh, however many games of the season we've had so far six seven seven games um i think that requires seven, yeah. it requires a big a fairly um big leap of faith at, at some points right so i think that's maybe why people are a little bit more concerned because the reality of what you're suggesting looks very different from what you expected right but i, I guess i mean we spoke about this on tifo even i, I kind of i i'm aiming for next season in terms of looking at what what is necessary maybe that's even too soon with depending on on certain players adjusting to what's expected of them to be good enough in their positions to to win a you know a league title especially when you're going up against city but i think it's not even so much so that we don't look like we can make the jump in a way which I, which maybe it does feel like but it's also we're just kind of in this middle period where we are in to some point you know a reconstruction of the system and it's it yeah i guess there's one thing to think about it like prepared ahead of the season be like okay this is going to happen then there's another thing to kind of see the yeah, results yeah, happening yeah, yeah. and feeling like we really could just be going back to what we did last season and i i do i guess it's also then that that thought of like would it have just been better to build on what we were doing last season just mm. you know pump up the profiles or was that never going to be good enough and i think i do think arteta felt that that was you know, reaching its limits and also kind of takes that page from Pep in terms of always trying to evolve the side. And I think he did make a brave decision in terms of like, either I can just try build on what was a really good system, right? And I think you know, maybe guys like, you guys know more about Deserby, but I feel like he does this sort of thing, like builds on, has a system, a way of playing, and he tries to build on and get better through that, through that means, right? I think Arteta thought like the best way of doing this is continuing to evolve and and whether he aimed for it to be good enough this season or if he's thinking longer term, we can't really know. 
Um, but yeah, looking at the recruitment we did, I thought it would take longer than a season. And that that's sort of where I sat at the beginning of the season. And it's just, you feel like a bit in no man's land right now when you're comparing us to the season before rather than where we could be next season, which is the unknown. And which, as John pointed out, as fans, you always want to think of in the best light possible, but we don't know. Um, so, yeah. I think as well with the build-up stuff dropping as considerably as it has, I don't think anyone anticipated that being where the problems would lie, right? That that suddenly it would be very hard for you to generate consistent progression of the ball. And I think that does raise questions, right? Because I think you can believe that the system wasn't right last season in the long run. But when it comes at the cost of like what seemed to be the basics for an elite team like Arsenal, I think that, that is it does raise more questions than it answers uh, in that sense. I won't lie, I did think we would struggle a little bit more with our central progression because because of Rice and I thought it would take yeah. some time to get to adjust. And then when we brought Havertz in, it just felt, I mean, Havertz was a bit unknown for me in that position. But but yeah, I, I will say, I think that's where we kind of thought the issues might lie and that there was going to be sort of periodization in terms of how we adjusted to it, which maybe we haven't adjusted to as well. I think we were maybe just a little bit higher on the fact that we could build around those issues in the meantime than has proven, at least as of yet. Yeah, I, I think that's a pretty good jumping off point here. To finish off the, the Q&A section, we just have one more question from Sav at Scouted X, uh, SXV. Uh, he asks, uh, how much of a part does John think individual liberalism and uh, plus second half uh, 20th century capitalism plays in the death of community? <laughs> I mean, do you want me to answer this question? I'm happy to, but like, it's <laughs> I could go on for a while. But yeah, I, I would say that the, the shift to liberalism is is a movement away from, um, I, I guess, uh, ideas of uh, meaning making, which are based on generally broader ideas. So, uh, for example, religion is a great example of that, right? So when you consider who the, the individual is within a religious system, it, it fits into a, a much broader um, conception of of what of how meaning um, and 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 the individual uh, function. When you get to liberalism, the, the things shift because the mean the the, lo the locus of meaning then becomes the individual. So the the individual is the the the, the person who determines what is and isn't meaningful for themselves, which I think is you know it's a good shift when you consider social liberalism as a good thing. I think we would all agree, and I hope that my, your listeners would agree that the individual should be able to make choices about who they are and what they're going to be as a as a as a uh, as an individual person. Um, but obviously, that then changes the way that you talk about the relations between individuals. It 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 becomes much harder to talk about societies when when you deem the individual to be the arbiter of what is and isn't meaningful. So I think that, yeah, definitely that impacts the way that um, the, the, the death of community has, has unfolded. And I think that the second half century, uh, 20th century capitalism is, is simply taking those liberal, uh, those liberal ideas about the individual and applied them to an economic system. So um, we try and get people to behave as consumers with the the mantra of liberalism being you are the person to determine that what what is and isn't the case and you should be happy therefore buy buy all of these goods um so yeah i would say lib individual liberalism has le led to the the rise of this problem of the death of community and that's just been bought into by 20th century capitalism i'm not going to bore 
like add on to it too much because obviously also by the way I said I love how you very seamlessly went from talking about Arsenal to <laughs> not even like a, a strange question to add to the end just what did you think about this John it's but, a very important question but yeah, I think... in, in the sense of Arsenal <laughs> but I also think there's an aspect of like of liberalism being at least how we understand and how it's it's born about come about as being inextricable from capitalism mm-hmm. It, as yeah. these things coming together, right? And there's that gamification of the self, especially, you know, where religion used to be like the reason for life. Now it's become sort of gamifying the self and maximizing your kind of productivity. And I think mm-hmm. what that leads to is your productiveness becomes your purpose. Yeah. At least that's what people tell themselves. And that's suddenly in terms of your productiveness, how you show your productiveness leads to things in terms of like what cars you like. That suddenly becomes dictated by the market so we lose a sense of community because we lose a sense of self because what we are is dictated by our productivity which is kind of the purpose that we've started to you know ascribe to i guess and i I guess you just get to this point where more and more you become you know your work life and your what you produce and stuff and what you can buy suddenly rather than communal spots it's places that you can buy stuff from that become these centers Hmm. of like society and i think just just on a very like basic level you, you, there are far less communal spots and far more places where people go to purchase and even if you can uh, like there's a there's a lot that i can go through <laughs> on this as well but even if you look like you look at how sitcoms have changed from being like centered at the home to now suddenly people meeting up at work it's just it's the way we i we think of community is con like completely changed as well. Um, Football as well. Yeah. Football has been impacted <laughs> yeah. by this, yeah. right? Because yeah. there used to be this sense that you supported your local club and, and that was the sense of community that you had. You were match-going fans and, and everyone was rooting for the club because they had an active interest in like the, the surrounding area. Whereas we've now moved away from that as capitalism has changed the, the, the match-going fan to a, a more economic in, uh, and I guess an economic liberal unit, right? Which is how many people can we get watching the game? Um, so we've moved away from match going fans to consumers of, of football. Um, and that's had an incredible impact on on the, the way that we enjoy football to this day as well. Yeah. So a takeaway from this pod is John has just told the South African and the German Arsenal fans as well as all of our followers <laughs> all around the world to support your local... It's, it's not good or bad. It's, it just is different, right? Um, but yeah. like, we have to be aware of the fact that we are viewed by both football clubs and uh, I think football club, club broadcasting corporations as merely like nodes that can consume their product which is a pretty depressing way of thinking about things, I suppose. But um, I think there is, there's always decisions that we can make as football fans to make sure that we push back against that uh, and make them aware of the fact that, you know, we the football the football is a communal as- aspect for us. Like we're talking about this uh, Arsenal Football Club, not, not because we're consumers of Arsenal Football Club, but because we care about what one another thinks. And we, we you know, the enjoyment yeah. for me comes from having chats with you Alex about uh, about football for example so I think it's always important to remember that we can always push back yeah I absolutely agree yeah I, I think any further discussion would far exceed the, <laughs> the the time limitations we have on this podcast big thank you to John for coming onto the pod uh, John where can people find you if they don't know you which seems like a foreign thing to me um, I'm on Twitter at John underscore McKenzie um, and then TIFO on YouTube 
or Instagram or TikTok. I got my first couple of one million TikTok viewed TikTok videos the other day. What <laughs> what a tragic state of affairs. But here we are. Here I am as a 37-year-old balding white man, you know, really making it with the kids on TikTok. Doing bits on TikTok. Doing bits. <laughs> Doing bits. Uh, if, if you want to follow us on any of our platforms, uh, they're all linked in the descriptions. Unfortunately, we don't have a TikTok account. Um, Which but... is a shame because I'm sure this this content would go to a million, you know. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> if you like what we're doing, you can uh, review and uh, rate the podcast on the relevant podcast servers. Uh, the music is made by James Blake. You can find him on at JWBlake on uh, Spotify. Be on the lookout for the feed this week. Uh, later on in the week, there should be a new project uh, coming uh, directly to your ears, which will be uh, very good, I, I hope. But that's that for this week. Uh, thank you very, very much for listening to this very, very long podcast and uh, see you next week.